0: As I said at the beginning of the service, we are starting a a short series, Tim and Dick and myself, on the miracles of Jesus, and I want to read, by way of an introduction to that series, a passage from John chapter 20, verses 24 through 31, which is printed in your bulletin. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, "'We have seen the Lord.' But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is God's word. One of the things that becomes clear as you read through John's gospel, to be sure, if not some of the others as well, is that imagination was not Thomas's long suit. Uh, He called a spade a spade. He was a realist, if not a skeptic, and he was not susceptible to believing in fairy tales. And if someone said something to Thomas that either he had trouble understanding or he couldn't believe, he had a way of asking pretty direct questions in pretty tough language. Well, the the gospel doesn't tell us where Thomas was on that first Sunday evening after Jesus's resurrection when Jesus encountered the other 11 disciples in that upper room just as surely as they encountered one another. And we aren't told where Thomas was. We're just told that he wasn't on the scene. Maybe he was devastated by the week's events prior to that and he just decided he needed some extra sleep. Maybe he needed a way of escape. He went down to the stadium and saw the chariot races. We aren't told. All we know is that he wasn't there. And when the disciples who had seen Jesus came to him and said, we've seen the Lord and he's alive, Thomas said, I won't. No, I can't believe it. You see, Thomas had been on hand when Jesus was crucified. And Thomas knew that dead men don't rise. Well, I don't know what The case is with you, but I myself am a doubter by nature. Uh, When anyone mentions the miraculous taking place, uh, I still hear it even as a convinced believer with a grain of salt, with a degree of skepticism, and I imagine a number of you find yourself in that same situation. But realize this, skepticism is not a modern phenomenon. Thomas was at it hard and long well before we came on the scene, It's not something that's just crept up with the modern scientific worldview. It's been around for a long time. And yet while that's true, the other thing that is clear is that miracles take place on nearly every page of the gospel. And the gospel isn't embarrassed about presenting Jesus as a miracle worker. As a matter of fact, miracles are bound up with his character. You can't disentangle miracles from Jesus. Now, some people who have been embarrassed by miracles have tried to do that, have tried to say, well, we can still accept that Jesus was a historical figure and we can still consider him an important historical figure without seeing him as being a performer of miracles. But realize that as soon as you do that, you end up with a character who is so dry, who's so boring, who is so banal that there's no chance that he could have affected history by starting the religious movement the way that Christianity has affected history. He's really not a character worth salvaging without the miracles as much as people want to do that. And the question for us becomes, well, what do we make of these miracles of Christ? You see, if you get rid of the miracles, you end up with a religion that's something other than Christianity. Just about everything that's distinctive in the Christian faith is a miracle. Creation, a miracle. The prophecies of the coming Messiah, a miracle. The incarnation of God in Jesus Christ, a miracle. The miracles of Jesus himself. His resurrection and his return at the end of the time. Everything distinctive about Christianity is a miracle. All the important events in the story are miracles. And make no mistake about it, Christianity is essentially that, a story. It's good news. And that sets it apart from another, a number of other religions in the world. See, you take the miracles out of other religious faiths, and those faiths remain pretty much intact. Nothing that gets at the core of what they're about is removed. But that's not the case with Christianity. Remove the miracles, remove the story, and you don't have Christianity any longer. See, the drama is the dogma. The dogma is the drama. Well, in the midst of this story that Christianity puts forth before us in the Gospels, we run into this account of Thomas, Thomas the doubter, Thomas the skeptic, and in this account, we're invited to take a look at those miracles, to consider, first of all, their existence, secondly, their meaning, their purpose, and finally, the kind of response that they're meant to evoke from us. And that's what we want to do in our time together this morning. Look at the existence of the miracles. Did they happen in the first place? Secondly, their meaning and their purpose. And finally, what kind of response they're meant to provoke in us. First then, can we really believe that the miracles took place? Perhaps the best way of dealing with that question is looking at the strongest or the most common arguments against the miraculous. Again, this passage tells us that Jesus did many other miraculous signs But these ones are recorded in order that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in him, you might have life in his name. Well, what are the most common arguments against the miraculous? I suppose the most common is that science says we've discovered laws of nature. We've discovered immutable laws of nature, and the miraculous is in direct contradiction to those laws. Therefore, miracles are impossible. They would contradict those laws that are set up in nature. David Hume, who was a 17th century Scottish philosopher, an 18th century Scottish philosopher, was the first one to put that forth. He said, because we've discovered these laws in nature, miracles are not only improbable, implausible, but really they're impossible. But what are we to make of that argument? How are we to attack that? How are we to deal with that? really there are so many problems with that kind of thinking that it would preclude uh, the amount of time that we have precludes into delving into all of them. But the thing that we can say from the get-go is that science has really proven no such thing. How could it possibly do so? You see, science by its very nature is a descriptive discipline. It's not a prescriptive discipline. That is, it tells us what is. It doesn't tell us what can be. It looks at nature... It looks at the factors around us, and it tries to describe those as best as it can using mathematical equations and the like. It can tell you what is. It can't tell you what ought to be or what can be. And as soon as science puts on the garb of believing it can tell you what can be, it ceases to be science, instead becomes religion. It becomes philosophy. And what's a law of nature, anyway? That's an important question to ask. What is a law of nature? Is it a thing that exists in and of itself? Is it an entity that sustains itself? No, the law is just a description of the regular patterns that scientists see in nature. And those laws are often continually being updated to take into account the more facts that we receive from nature as we do further investigation. A law is an, en- an entity. It's not a thing in and of itself itself. It doesn't, frankly, the laws don't tell us how they came into being. It doesn't tell us what sustains them. From the Christian perspective, from a biblical perspective, the laws of nature are just the ways that God regularly governs the universe. It's not as though he spun the universe out and said, here are some laws that I'll build into this and I'll remove myself from it. But instead, the Bible says that God continues to sustain the universe, that he's at work at it in all times. That he doesn't create it, set it in motion, and then pull away, but he's always involved in maintaining the universe. And that those laws of nature are just the descriptions of the way God regularly governs the universe. And miracles, on that basis, are the irregularities in nature. Or they're irregularities in the way that God governs the universe. Listen, if there is no God then not only can you not have miracles, frankly, you can't even have laws of nature. Because if there is no God, that means that chance rules. And if chance rules, then there can be no certain uniformity in nature. That is, you don't know that what happens today and the way that nature behaves today is the way it's going to behave tomorrow. If chance is at work, well, there's no reason why dead people can't rise that there can't be resurrections taking place all the time because who's to say how the molecules might just randomly rearrange themselves? If there is no God, not only can you not have general uniformity in nature, you can't have miracles either, but if there is a God, then you can both say there are general laws, there are general uniformity, there is a general uniformity in nature, but also you have to admit the possibility of miracle taking place. That is, that there are forces that are beyond our explanation in God's power itself that can be at work in the world, that can be at work in the universe. You see, in the final analysis, Christianity doesn't ask you to believe in miracles and be less scientific. It asks you, in your belief of miracles, to be more scientific. That is, to take into account all the facts, to take into account All the possibilities. One of the lines that is easy to, that we're easily fed by our own culture is that science is the only means to truth. That the scientific method is the only means to truth. But think of it this way what if miracles do take place and science isn't able to discover them? Does that suddenly mean, well, what that leaves us with is a discipline in the long run that's faulty. It's unable to discover certain things that take place. Science can tell us a lot about what goes on in the world, but it's not the only means to truth. And again, as soon as it seeks to say that it is, and as soon as it tries to be prescriptive for what can happen and not merely descriptive of what often happens, then again, it ceases to be science and instead becomes religion and scientific drag. It's not unreasonable to believe that miracles take place. But not only is it not unreasonable to believe that miracles take place, this passage that we read in John and the gospel itself tells us that miracles do take place. Now someone says, well, you know, uh, there's a lot of people out there who say they've seen miracles. Aren't you suspicious about those things? And I'll say, yeah, I am suspicious. Suspicious about those things. They say people have said there are miracles in places where science has eventually come in and said no such miracle took place. Or people have said I've been miraculously healed of a disease when they actually weren't healed of it. But what you need to understand is, you know, let's say you get a counterfeit dollar bill when you go to the grocery store. The fact that you have a counterfeit dollar bill, does that mean no real dollar bills exist anywhere? No, the possibility of fakes doesn't mean that there aren't possibilities of the real thing taking place as well. You say, I've never seen a miracle. Well, I've never seen Nepal. But that doesn't stop me from believing that Nepal exists. Just because you haven't seen one yourself doesn't preclude the possibility of miracles existing. And the Gospels recount the miracles in such a way that the evidence for their existence is overwhelming. Look at just a few things. First of all, notice the way in which the Gospels tell the stories of the miracles. It's done without fanfare. It's done without sensationalism. There's not a lot of magic incantations being said. There's not a lot of uh, hoopla going on around the miracles. There's not magic potions being used. They're told in the most matter-of-fact way. They're told, frankly, as history. And any literary critic who reads the Bible will say, The the stories that are told us in the scriptures differ greatly from miracle stories that we read in other accounts. Where they have all the trappings of myth about them, the Bible stories don't have those trappings about them. They're told in a matter-of-fact way. Second thing to notice about the way that the Bible recounts the miracles is that it tells them, without hiding the suspicions and the skepticisms of people under the carpet. Here we have this account of Thomas. And Thomas says, I can't believe it. I won't believe it. I know dead men don't rise. It records his suspicion. And that's not the only place that it takes place. We see in numerous occasions, the skepticism of the people who are on the scene is brought into the foreground And that leads us to the third thing that we we realize about the gospel accounts of the miracles, and that is that it was not gullible individuals who are recounting that they took place. That is, instead, there are people who, because of their skepticism, their opinions need to be taken seriously. And it really smacks, if you will, of chronological snobbery. It smacks of cultural chauvinism, to believe that our faith, as 20th century modern people, our faith about what took place 2,000 years ago, it smacks of cultural snobbery or chronological snobbery to believe that our faith about those things must displace the first century witnesses. Were they that much dumber, that much more gullible than we were? There's nothing that should lead us to believe that when you read all the writings of the ancients. No, the perception of the first witnesses needs to have the premier role in the conversation. And other than having a worldview which presupposes the non-existence of miracles, there's no good reason not to accept the fact that they took place. Again, if they didn't take place, Jesus Jesus becomes an unremarkable teacher who couldn't possibly have founded a movement that affected the whole world, which affects even the way that we tell time and the way we begin our calendars. Leslie Newbigin puts it like this. He says, you know, you can dismiss the miracles as fables if you want to, which is what a large segment of our population does, but realize that when you do that, it has nothing to do with the modern scientific worldview. People even At 33 A.D. Knew that individuals who had been killed Who were buried for three days Didn't rise They knew that without there needing to be The invention of electric lights They were well aware of it The Bible presents the miracles in a way That only a strong bias against them Would lead us to, to the conclusion That they don't take place Well what's a miracle anyway? This passage not only tells us that miracles do exist, but it tells us what their purpose is as well, what they try to get across. I suppose the most general definition for a miracle is an event that's not susceptible to a natural explanation. That is, a miracle is something which departs from the ordinary patterns of nature. And that's true as far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough. Because in the scripture, miracles embody truth claims. That is, they're trying to communicate something. They're trying to tell us something about who God is and what he's like. And the way that John gets it across in this passage here is by the use of the word sign. He says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs. But these ones, these signs are written in order that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Well, what's a sign? If I'm looking for signs... To the Lincoln Tunnel, I'm not looking to the signs as ends in themselves. I'm looking for them in order that they might point me in a given direction. No one who finds the sign comes upon it and says, I found the sign. My job's done. No, they find the sign in order that it might point them in a particular direction so that they can find the thing they're looking for. And such are the biblical miracles. They're signs. Not ends in and of themselves, but they point to something beyond themselves. Now, signs may be unclear or clear. And I, frankly, find signs to the Lincoln Tunnel to be completely obtuse. Uh, Whenever I try to make my way out of the city, I usually go around the block there about 10 or 12 times before I finally find the right street to turn down. But that doesn't take away from the fact that signs aren't ends in and of themselves, regardless of whether they're clear or not. They aren't. They point to something. Now, what do the biblical signs point to? Well, this passage tells us that they point us to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. They're trying to tell us about God, what he's like. They're trying to tell us about Jesus, what his character is like, what he's come to accomplish, what he's going to do in the future. They tell us that he's the Son of God and that he's come to deliver us And that he's come to establish his kingdom. See, miracles aren't a matter of God just showing off. A momentary display of his power. Uh, If you remember the series back in the 60s, Bewitched, that was sort of how Tabitha used her magic. She was sort of bored and she would just levitate an object from one place in the room to another place in the room just to have a little fun. But that's not the way the biblical miracles are displayed at all. They're not just God showing off. And they aren't merely acts of compassion, though they are that. See, if the acts, if the miracles are just acts of compassion, uh, if they're just in response to human needs, then what we'd have to say is there haven't been nearly enough of them. Because there's a lot of needs out there in your life, in my life, and in the lives of people who have much more tragic situations than perhaps we do that don't get met by miracles. So while they do reveal that God's a compassionate God, they're trying to say something more. They're pointing us to Jesus. They're pointing us to the place where we come and realize that he can be trusted. That he has power, in the Gospel of John, for instance, over disaster. He has power over disability. He has power over disease. He has power over death. And having power over those areas means that he can be trusted. He can be relied upon. It tells us that he has brought in the kingdom and will bring it in fullness in one day. If you will, the miracles are previews of coming attractions. They say this is what's coming down the pike. This is what eventually will arrive. God's kingdom when everything will be set right. Here are the previews of the coming attractions. And Jesus is the one who has begun to bring them in and will one day bring them in in fullness. These are the signs that confirm that Jesus Christ is the Lord, the Christ, the Son of God, God incarnate, and that he's worthy of our trust. And apparently we need these signs, or we need the accounts of these signs at least, in order to believe. Certainly they're meant to be a help, not a hindrance to believe. Jesus says in John chapter 4, verse 58, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. Now we're told elsewhere in the scripture that creation by itself does reveal God. In fact, it reveals him unmistakably, clearly, and it's only because of the blindness of our own eyes created by sin that we fail to believe in God and see that he's at work. And what miracles are is a way of God calling us to attention, of startling us out of our complacency and saying, God saying, I am here, I'm at work, and I'm at work in power, and I'm at work in mercy and for good in your life. That's what miracles are. They're they're signs that cause us to admit God's greatness and his mercy. And His goodness, and they point us to Jesus, who is the Christ. The last thing that we learn about miracles from this passage is that they're meant to provoke a response in us the response of belief. Jesus did many other miraculous signs, but these are written in order that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. Another way of putting that is that miracles leave you with a choice. They put you in the courtroom, and they put you on the judge's chair, and they say, you are to render a verdict. What will it be? You, take a look at these miracles. Take a look at the accounts, and you determine their authenticity. Look at them as evidence for the authenticity and their credibility. And then ask yourself, will I believe that the miracles took place, or won't I? And not merely will I believe that the miracles take place, but will I believe what the miracles point to? Will I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that I might have life? And that's their purpose, to bring you to the place where you believe in the name of Jesus, that is, all that he is, his character, his person, All that he is, all that he was, all that he has done, all that he is promising to do and is now doing. And believing is not just a matter of intellectual knowledge. Instead, it involves the whole person. Not only the understanding, but the emotions and the will as well. That's why the miracles are set out before you in order that you might embrace Christ fully, relying upon him depending upon him as one who is good and who can be trusted, who has demonstrated that he has power over the factors of this life, the things that lead us to despair, the things that cause us to fret. Jesus says through his miracles, I'm in control of all those things. You need not fear. I'm in charge. Get to know me. And as you put your trust in him As you believe in this whole sense We're told it gives us life You believe in order that you might have life And at the core of life Is that knowing God Is that knowing God in our lives Jesus says that elsewhere In John chapter 17 he says This is eternal life That they may know you, God the Father And me, Jesus Christ The one you have sent And when you reconnect with him who is the source of life and who sustains life and you know him deeply, then you are enabled to live large. You're enabled to live well in the world regardless of the circumstances that come your way. And when you get to know him, as we must, then your life, Jesus says, will be filled with life. Meaning, purpose, wholeness. But realize that these miracles aren't recounted merely for the skeptic, merely for the person who's in the position of non-belief. These are also to keep you believing if you already believe. That is, to encourage you if you are believing. Because any of us who've lived the Christian life for any period of time realize that there is a lot of things that make us want to throw in the towel from time to time. To say, I've had it. I don't really see how I can go on any longer. And John is saying here in this passage that these miracles are accounted, recounted for you as well. That you might continue to believe and continue to trust that you won't throw in the towel. They're written to convince you that God's on your side. They're God's extraordinary way of showing that he intends... Not to bring death your way, not to lead you into despair, but to give you life. God's on your side. He's not your enemy. He wants to give you life. And that's what's communicated to us in these miracles. And yet we are so often intent on pursuing death instead. Not trusting, not obeying, not following Christ, but instead trusting, obeying, following only ourselves. Making sure we call the shots, but we're told that the only thing that leads to is destruction and death. And so a choice is left before you. What will it be? Belief in life or unbelief and death and judgment? That's the question that's left with us. And some people look at this kind of a passage they look at the gospel of John and they say I need more evidence and that's probably the last thing that we need to notice is that according to John there is enough frankly in just his gospel to convince you that you ought to believe that is what is told us in John's gospel is sufficient evidence to overthrow any other testimony that you might bring into the picture and say I can't possibly believe this John says, no, I'm afraid you're wrong. There is enough here. And what we need, therefore, is not more evidence. What we need to do is take a closer look, a more intent look at what's already been given us. Are you doing that? Whether you're already at a place of belief or whether you remain in unbelief, are you looking at the Gospels long and hard in getting to know the one that they tell us about. The one whose love is better in life. The one to whom to know is life itself. That's what you're called to do. So as this new year begins, do that. Read the Gospels. They can accuse you of unbelief if that's the place that you're at. They can convince you of belief. They can keep you believing. And they can give you life.